The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Sportbox. The headlines, Fed officials move to soothe over market concerns ahead of key inflation data this week. The San Francisco Fed president, Mary Daly, telling CNBC to look beyond the short-term numbers. And I would smooth through the volatility of the monthly data and really see the underlying strength of the economy. There is considerable momentum that's building. I'm still bullish about the fall. And we're really going to have to remain steady in the boat. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 erased gains to the end of the day as the market rally stalled, dragged down by weakness in the energy sector. The White House and the Kremlin announced Presidents Biden and Putin will hold face-to-face talks in Geneva in mid-June as European leaders call for a Russian reset after the Belarus flight incident. We need to reframe our relationship with Russia in a very profound way so as not to be simply reactive but to define a short, medium and long-term strategy, taking into account the fact that the European security space requires a demanding discussion with Russia. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reiterates America's uh, commitment to Israeli security and vows to repair ties with the Palestinians and help rebuild Gaza. We believe that Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely, to enjoy measures of freedom, opportunity, and democracy, to be treated with dignity. And we've got the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo telling CNBC that she's confident of boosting semiconductor production in the country as the chip shortage rattles a range of industries. There's disruption all over supply chains, but nothing as important as semiconductors. When the semiconductor supply chain is disrupted, the economy is disrupted. There was a lot of Fed commentary for investors to wade through yesterday. And as you can see, markets are not holding up as a result. Uh, still, those inflation concerns that apparently some quarter of the markets are, are comfortable with now. It's just telling you some other investors are simply not as comfortable around the trajectory here that uh, perhaps there's still too much stimulus that the Fed will have to tighten sooner rather than later. And you can see uh, markets are just reversing by the close of the trading session. Now, some of these comments are Richard Clarida. One of them, uh, again, trying to soothe the investors' fears, saying they'll, able, they'll be able to curb an outbreak of inflation and ensure a soft landing, uh, this sort of uh, Goldilocks scenario or soft landing, uh, this uh, pivot that many of the markets are watching closely as we talk about talking about a taper down the track. So investors, when it comes to the individual markets, uh, pulling back on a couple of key stocks. And in fact, it was also away from some of the, the Fed action where you saw stocks moving. Exxon, for instance, uh, that stock in the energy space was one where we saw quite a bit of pressure ahead of a key investor meeting later on today. That was uh, one of the big drivers for the markets. Uh, Amgen as well, this around a patent dispute. So again, other big issues uh, for investors to contend with as well. But let's just take a look at the treasury markets and you can see how we're trading on that U.S. 10-year yield. It does suggest, I'm talking about this split market where some of those fears have been tamed and you've got this yield pulling back as a result. That said, you're still seeing some of the volatility expressed 
on the equity markets. Uh, the dollar, let's just take a quick look at how the uh, greenback is faring. It has been very much on the back foot and trading around its lowest points so far for 2021. Sterling dollar, 141.68. Uh, we are about a tenth of percent in the green morning session. You can see euro trades 122.5. That is a, a much firmer level we are seeing. Dollar yen also just starting to climb at this stage. And worth noting, the yuan's daily midpoint fixing has been at its strongest level since 2018. And that is the currency tested at a key level versus the dollar yesterday. You can see we're just below that 6.4 level at this stage. Asian markets are picking up on some of these themes. This is how it looks. Australia a little bit weaker. But uh, patches of green across the markets, particularly for Hong Kong, which is trading nicely up 220 points or three quarters of one percent in the green. The only calls for Europe, uh, the early suggestion is mostly firmer on the continent. Uh, green areas that we're chasing for the German, French and Italian markets are a little bit soft on the FTSE here at this stage. Uh, we've got some monthly numbers to take a look at as well. And it's just worth as you take a look at the early opening calls this morning, keeping in mind the strength we've seen in that German stock market. It's been up uh, for the month so far, more than 2%. And we saw those record highs in the market yesterday. It has been one of the key markets in Europe to play for the month. But so too has the Italian stock market that has gained more than 3%. So you can see we're chasing some high ranges on these markets again. But US futures, uh, the early indications from Wall Street are that we will see a little bit more green uh, early on. And you can see uh, the open for the Dow suggests almost 90 odd points and 55 odd on the NASDAQ. So uh, that is a firmer signal than when we closed up shop yesterday. So we've got a lot more Fed massaging of the market. Uh, the Fed's Richard Clarida has raised the possibility the FOMC may discuss tapering its asset purchases in upcoming meetings, as he described the recent spike in inflation as a, quote, unpleasant surprise. But the uh, Fed vice chair said any potential talks on tapering would depend on the data, repeating his base case for transitory inflation. Clarida said the Fed would act if price pressures prove persistent. Meanwhile, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly has weighed in on the transitory debate, telling CNBC it is, quote, way too early to tighten policy. I am firmly in the transitory camp. We have a number of transitory factors that are pushing up inflation right now. Some of them are just the base effects from last year. But importantly, we have spot market prices rising in a variety of areas as demand is resurged much more quickly than supply can absolutely come online. So I'm looking through these things, looking to the end of the year when the supply-demand balances are more intact before I'm drawing any conclusions about this being a more persistent trend. All right, just remember those words in a few moments' time. Transitory camp. Okay, let's move on. So, the Pershing Square Capital CEO, Bill Ackman, says he believes the Fed's current approach will eventually result in higher rates. While the Federal Reserve has taken a very accommodative approach to monetary policy, in fact, has changed its approach to preempting inflation, to waiting to see, uh, perhaps as they say, the whites of the eyes of inflation, a couple of quarters of inflation before they have a uh, an adjustment in policy. And you know, that approach may lead to a uh, that combined with, you know, fiscal and, you know, monetary and just the human stimulus, we think, has the potential to a fairly significant increase in prices, inflation, uh, and ultimately higher, higher rates. Right. So you remember those daily comments from just before about uh, it just being transitory on the inflation front as well, and it's under control at the moment, yeah? U.S. home prices surged over 13% in March. 
Just savour that, ladies and gentlemen, over 13% in March, the highest growth in over 15 years. According to the Case-Shiller House Price Index, it's 10th straight month of accelerating house prices. Okay, so just to recall, 13%, highest growth in 15 years, uh, 10 straight months. So going way back into the height of the pandemic. All right, okay, we're on the same page. But the rate of sales of new homes slumped almost 6% in April as demand outstripped supply. There you go, Jeffrey. Investors are eyeing another key data point due out Friday when the Bureau of Economic Analysis reveals the latest personal consumer expenditure price index reading, the so-called PCE. The data point is the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation measure. Reuters is forecasting the metric to rise 0.6% from April. Colt Smead joins us, President and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital. Cole, good morning to you. Good to see you back with us. Um, just give us a, a, a line on how you're managing portfolios at the moment and how you view the risk on opportunity. It's a, it's a great question. And, um, you know, listening to the Fed uh, say things like unpleasant and transitory, it's unpleasant because they couldn't have predicted it. And that's what's unpleasant about it is they have very little control over what's going on right now. So as you talk about things like housing and you see the inputs tied to housing like lumber um, just literally going to the sky, uh, what is going on is the Fed believes that supply will somehow meet demand by the year end, like like, uh, Ms. Daly was saying. The only problem is demand's actually growing faster than the supply can reach. Any big ticket item in America right now uh, is in hot demand and you're going to wait two to six months depending on the ticket. And so this is a very interesting time as a, as a millennial, uh, nobody my age has ever seen this before. And most baby boomers haven't seen this since they were young kids. Let's just um, unpack that for a moment, because there are some problems here with the analysis, it seems to me. If we are going to run hot, and if these price rises that we're seeing are going to translate into something more permanent... Wouldn't we be seeing things like the Economic Surprises Index from City being much stronger than it came out? And I know that the measure emerged a few days ago, but ultimately it was the first time in a year that it was close to going negative. That doesn't quite ring true to the analysis that the economy is going to permanently run hot from here. The other thing is Steve talked about the property price rises he also mentioned, of course, that the, we saw a dip in the new home sales in April, but consumer confidence also dipped in May. Is it possible that we've actually just brought forward a lot of the consumption into April and that from May onwards, we're going to see these numbers start to weaken and cool as that extra spending and that consumption is sated? It's a great question. I think that's really the ultimate debate. Um, some people stand on the side of this is a sugar high in things like housing. And then the other side of the debate where we stand is that we've taken a generation of Americans, millennials, and woken them to housing. Um, they don't want to live in cities. They want to live in suburbs. They don't want to live in New York. They want to live in Boise, Idaho. And so I say that because um, the trend that you're seeing in the detachment from coastal cities to second tier cities is something we've never seen. The Fed has no way of predicting this. It's just not in the data. Um, it, it's unlike anything we saw in the last 10 years. And I think housing is really the key to this. Um, like you reported, uh, demand is outstripping supply. It's not that there's not demand there. It's that we can't produce it fast enough. 
And as it gets sucked up, it, you're back to that kind of big ticket item and waiting conversation uh, we were at a second ago. So if you look back 20 years, housing has produced 4% price inflation. And if you go ask the Fed what CPI was, they'd say it was less than that. But if you go look at other high inflationary periods like 1968 to 81 here in the United States, um, housing produced higher price inflation than the CPI did as well. So I think housing is the most interesting look at inflation because it always produces a higher number than the government publishes. And I, I think it's just giving us a better forward indicator of inputs, the cost of labor rising, trying to find subcontractors on housing. You better be a praying person these days in the United States if you'd like to find someone like that. Carl, I'm quite excited when salaries go up for people. Not um, crazily, of course, but when they go up because the median US salary has gone up in minuscule amounts over the last 20 years, if it's gone up at all, compared to the exaggerated salaries of the CEOs of the top 500 companies as well. People seem to be afraid of the second round effects. I welcome them in many ways if it's going to readdress that balance as well. But the hiring intentions, the jolt survey, the optimism on hiring from various surveys says that actually it's getting harder to find good um, employees with the right qualifications. Have we got the second round effects coming in yet? In which case, that may wake up the Fed. Well, see, you know, I, I'll use uh, Tillman Fertitta was on uh, one of your U.S. shows um, yesterday, and uh, that question was kind of posed to Tillman, and he started talking about his inputs. But he said, "Listen, his managers at his casinos are being hired away by other companies at higher prices with huge incentives. In effect, we're short labor." And that's why the price of labor is climbing. And to your point, uh, to, to your point um, uh, we haven't seen this even so long. And, and that's why people are befuddled. And it's going straight to the mouths of people on the lower end of the income bracket. It is not helping the CEOs. Okay? The CEOs are ultimately helped by stock prices going higher. And I would argue to the investors watching the show that we are going to have a troubling time trying to make higher highs on the S&P 500 index over the next 10 years that will not pay the CEOs well versus this pricing pressure we're seeing in labor. It's fantastic. I totally agree with you. It's going to be the democratization or it, class warfare will look a little different in five or 10 years than we've been talking about the last two or three. Yeah, uh, just about in my lifetime, CEOs of the S&P 500 were on about 20 to 30 times the average salary of their workers. It's now about 314 times, so I don't have any pity for them at the top end. Another quick question for you. Um, I noticed a Japanese uh, party official comment today uh, talking about uh, overtly using domestic policy to weaken the yen. Are the gloves off on competitive devaluations on currencies globally? If so, uh, well, the dollar's ahead of the pack at the moment. For how much longer is that going to be the case? See, actually, I, I think a lot of the rest of the world's problem is going to be watching the dollar weaken and how do they kind of fight the weakness of the dollar. And I, I don't think it's actually uh, politically tied in the case of the United States. If commodities do well, the dollar just terrible. It's just the history of the dollar because we are not a big commodity nation as we're Australia, uh, Aussie, uh, you know, the Aussie dollar or the Canadian dollar, they're going to do much better in comparison in those kind of environments. So I, I think we're in a weak dollar era as commodities do well. Also, as, as the price of oil rises, and by the way, we're fighting almost 70 on Brent and people are pretty negative about oil. Oil climbing is going to go right in the dollar's face. So, um, so I, if you're a country like Japan, you're really going to deal with a situation where the dollar is weakening because commodities are going up. It's not because uh, the Biden administration necessarily wants a weak dollar, like, say, Trump talked about all the time.
Uh, Cole, I wanted to get into some of your plays and the real estate trade uh, fascinated me as we saw record highs yesterday. But if you start digging into the basket of stocks, you've got some old real estate assets. Uh, you know, Simon Property Group, for instance, is one that makes up a, a real estate basket very heavily weighted towards malls. You've had a lot of other uh, different elements in the, a real estate basket, though, that's done well with communication, uh, you know, towers, that sort of thing uh, that has benefited on the back of all the cloud services. What do you think is left in this trade as, as you take a look at real estate and particularly focus on malls? That's a great question. So just to kind of give you guys a channel check, we're here in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, we've been fairly open the last six to 12 months relative to other places like New York and California. Um, what we see right now is post-pandemic mall traffic is crazy. A Monday at lunch, you can't find a parking spot. We didn't have that going on prior to the pandemic. Part of that is the restaurants away from mall spaces have died. Uh, mom and pop restaurants are, are very much hurting. They didn't have access to capital. Um, that's a weak spot in the economy versus big national chains or um, very you know high-end uh, restaurants that are at malls. So I think restaurants are a big driver of that. But secondly, people are bored out of their mind. Back to what Tillman was saying yesterday on your US network. Um, he said that it doesn't matter whether we're talking you know Vegas, um, hotels, anything like that. They're booming businesses. I'll be heading up uh, this weekend to drive up uh, into California, and we'll stop in Vegas on the way en route for a little family vacation. And to pay three, four, five, six hundred dollars a night in Vegas, even on a Thursday or Friday night, is common now because people are bored out of their mind. So I, I think I think the mall assets. What's most interesting is both this economic cyclicality, the comeback, if you will, of the economy. But secondly, the thing we were talking about prior, this idea of inflation. If you own an asset and there's very few competitors within 30 minutes of you with that asset, if in inflation picks up, it's going to be tougher for people to compete with you because the cost of capital is rising. Secondly, the beautiful part is the value of your assets are going up with inflation. So um, to use a, a, a Charlie Munger term, uh, you know, he, he says you find a wonderful business and sit on your butt, but he used a little bit different word that I won't say on your network. But my whole point in that is we're going to be incredibly lazy investors and it's going to be a lot of fun in the mall business and no one's got guts or brains to want to go in there right now. Well, I think I want your life. Uh, put a little bit on lucky number five for me when you get to Vegas. Uh, I want to ask you about <laughs> media stocks too, though, before we let you go. AT&T yeah. Discovery, you say you like this one. This is the, the teaming up of the AT&T Entertainment Media Assets with Discovery. The market's not so optimistic at this point, and you've seen a lot of caution around the, the competition that's coming quickly into this space when it felt as though some of the legacy businesses had set themselves up nicely with a little bit of leeway for the next 12 months or so with some of these streaming platforms. No longer the case with this increased competition. Why do you like it? Why do you not have the same concerns? Because media people are better at media than non-media people, and the market really has it upside down right now. So, for example, Amazon's working on closing their deal with MGM. Go back and look at the history of companies that got into the media business, like Coca-Cola, like conglomerates, like Gulf and Western back in the 1960s. And what you'll find is a graveyard of, of opportunities where uh, media assets languished. Um, it was like AOL and Time Warner merging up. The, putting a tech company with a media asset just didn't work. Um, it's very interesting that the market thinks it's going to work now because they believe the business managers of some of these big companies are just so good. Um, we, we just don't think that's true. And we, we don't think that'll play out further. If you're looking at the AT&T um, discovery deal, I think the biggest wild card in that whole deal is actually the movie studio business. Um, if MGM's getting 9 billion, I think Warner Brothers assets will get something very attractive as well. 
So I think there's very marketable assets in the deal that could go off if they don't want to be in the movie business. But I, I think what people in London need to understand is that those assets put together, the CNN, the sports, um, the Eurosport that Discovery already has in their content, it's coming to an international market near you. That's where the biggest growth driver of this business will be. They will have a package that will be unparalleled in most markets abroad. And it's a, it includes you know, news and sports, which nobody else has. Um, really, the only person that's close uh, would be Disney via ESPN. But once again, um, I, I'd say they don't have international news like CNN has. So it's a wonderful deal. Malone's there. The advanced Newhouse um, family uh, structure is there. And um, what we love is not many people have any confidence in it. And we've been making money with Discovery for over three years. And we were owning scripts prior to that. So we have one more go around with Malone. There's a lot of debt and he never goes bankrupt and he gets the best terms. Um, why not be pleased? Always a pleasure catching up. Thanks for staying up for us. Cole Smead, president and portfolio manager of Smead Capital. Uh, still to come on the program this morning, the date is set for Joe Biden's first face-to-face meeting with Vladimir Putin since becoming president. We'll talk some more about that in just a moment. And for more from the Fed officials ahead of Friday's PCE reading, check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. President Biden has tapped Thomas Knight to become the next U.S. ambassador to Israel, according to NBC News sources. Knight is currently a vice chairman at Morgan Stanley, but is no stranger to diplomacy, having served as deputy secretary of state under President Obama. Uh, The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the White House's intention to provide economic aid to Gaza as he met with leaders in Israel and the West Bank during his Middle East tour. The trip comes less than a week after a ceasefire brought an end to the worst violence in the region since 2014. Well, very interesting, the uh, change in tact from the US administration compared with the previous administration. Of course, uh, Jared Kushner and others, Dan, thought that they were uh, getting closer to solving uh, decades-long problems. They still seem to be uh, very much to the forefront as well. What can the Blinken stroke Biden initiative do uh, to restore peace on the long term? It's an excellent question, Steve. And all of this really underscoring what some say is a shift in American attitudes towards Israel. We've just finished a conversation with Shalom Lipner. He's a former top aide to the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and served in the Prime Minister's office for more than two decades. He described this ceasefire as fragile, because that's exactly what it is, the catalyst for the flare-up that we've seen between Israelis and Palestinians and Israelis and Hamas continues to be very evident. And that's why the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is in the region seeking to bolster support for that ceasefire, but at the same time, also reiterating American support for a two-state solution and, interestingly, announcing more than 100 million US dollars in fresh aid to Gaza where a humanitarian crisis continues to unfold. Here's some of what Secretary Blinken said alongside the Palestinian Authority leader in the city of Ramallah in the past 24 hours. 
uh, I informed uh, President Abbas uh, and earlier uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu that uh, the United States will notify Congress of our intention to provide uh, $75 million in additional development and economic assistance uh, for the Palestinians in uh, 2021. Of course, the United States is very keen to ensure that Hamas does not benefit from this new aid to Gaza. However, that could be a very difficult task given the situation on the ground. At the same time, we've also learned that the United States now plans to reopen its consulate in Jerusalem. This is quite a significant move because historically that consulate has served as a very important conduit between the Americans and the Palestinians. So perhaps an effort here on the American side to reopen the conversation refresh the dialogue with the Palestinians. Of course, remember the Trump administration merged that consulate with the US embassy in Israel back in 2019 after it recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. So we are seeing a significant shift. All of this really underscoring what some analysts say is a shift in American attitudes towards Israel after this latest conflict, because we also know that President Biden has faced significant pressure from within his own party to change that stance. Now, whether or not this is a meaningful shift really remains to be seen. Either way, though, we do know that Blinken is going to be in the region. The conversation will continue throughout the course of this week, all the way into tomorrow. He's set to also visit Egypt and Jordan as part of this very significant tour. Guys, it's back over to you. Terrific, Dan. Thank you so much for that. EU leaders have hailed the raft of fresh sanctions set to be imposed on Belarus following the forced diversion of a Lithuania-bound Ryanair flight to Minsk and the subsequent arrest of dissident journalist Raman Pratasevich. Leaders also discussed Russia's potential role in the incident, giving its backing to Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, said Russia's close ties to Belarus meant it is time for the EU to re-examine its security strategy in relation to Moscow. Il est apparu à l'ensemble des États membres et je dois dire que c'est la conviction profonde de la France depuis, vous le savez, plusieurs mois. It's become clear to all member states, and it's been France's deep conviction for several months, that we need to reframe our relationship with Russia in a very profound way, so as not to be simply reactive, but to define a short, medium and long-term strategy, taking into account the fact that the European security space requires a demanding discussion with Russia and also taking into account the relative effectiveness of the measures that we've been able to take over the last few years. The date has been set for Joe Biden's first face-to-face meeting since uh, becoming president with Russia's Vladimir Putin. The pair will meet in Geneva on June the 16th, where they are slated to discuss cybersecurity and alleged election interference tensions in Ukraine and Belarus and the detention of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. In fact, it is such a full slate of issues, it is difficult to know where to begin here, from the colonial pipeline issue, the solar winds hack, the uh, alleged poisoning of Mr Navalny, and so the list goes on. And added to that list now, we have the latest action by um, uh, Belarus. The question really is, what more can we see in terms of progress in this relationship? Because right now, Biden's talking about the best that we really want here is something that represents a stable and predictable relationship. In a sense, it is that already. But 
Is President Putin going to use this opportunity just as another chance to grandstand and perhaps demonstrate that um, Russia continues to, uh, diplomatically at least, embarrass uh, many Western leaders? I don't think there's going to be any reset, is there, this time round? We've spoken about it over various different points in the past when there's a new administration. But stability is the best outcome, isn't it? And I think if you look at the pushback already that we've had from Russia about any further sanctions from Europe this year as they threatened to break off diplomatic relations with the EU, and you've seen the United States also tiptoe around Russia as a result, not wanting to upset the Europeans at this point, I don't see what changes. I mean, we have stories here that you'd want to see pushback around dissidents, opponents, how they're treated and what's happening now on foreign soil as well. You want a strong-arm approach from the United States and Europe. I just wonder if you're going to get it because there's too many other issues at play here. Uh, so I, I don't know what's really going to change on this. The question is whether you see any escalation of aggression from Russia on other issues uh, and around borders and whether that's then met with an aggressive uh, response from the West. Until something like that happens, I think it's going to be very much status quo, Steve. I don't know what you think. You've been in and out of Russia all the time. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think you, you both hit the nail on the head. Stability and, and security and understanding the relationship. Look, President Putin has seen various presidents come and go over the 20 years plus. He's been in charge as well. And, and he's very happy with the status quo in many ways. Yes, there's mild inconveniences when you have sanctions against individuals or individual entities and there are financing restrictions on certain uh, Russian businesses. But while, and Jeff, you mentioned uh, a pipeline. I thought you were going to go on the other pipeline because the colonial one, uh, again, the Russians, if it is the Russians behind it, whether it's a private private enterprise or a state-sponsored enterprise have proven what they can do as well. And it's all part of this uh, just jousting that goes on in a Cold War. Let's be honest about it. That's what we saw uh, for 50 years plus post-1945. The other pipeline I was going to mention was Nord Stream 2. Uh, and until you see some really aggressive action from the Europeans, for instance, on Nord Stream 2, something that President Trump and I'm sure President Biden feel very similar about, i.e. Europe wants defence against Russia. It wants a strong NATO against Russia, which it sees as its primary threat at the moment, but it wants to take a vast amount of its energy from Russia and as, as such has um, energy security issues. Uh, until Europe gets aggressive on Nord Stream 2, and when I say Europe, I mean Germany, uh, quite frankly, the Russians would be very happy with the status quo. The only thing I'll add into that as well is domestic opposition as well. And as we've seen, and you've already mentioned with the Navalny situation, uh, President Putin's domestic situation apparently is a lot weaker than it has been for a very long time. People are upset about the economic situation uh, and the benefits from higher energy prices and gas prices especially have not come through to your average Russian and there is a lot of dissent out there as well. So everything you see on an international basis, you have to frame in how it plays to a domestic audience as well. And that's key for Mr. Putin. As you quite rightly know, Jeffrey, because you've been the victim uh, of some Putin grandstanding before when you've uh, interviewed the gentleman as well, uh, he can go into a rather lengthy monologue. Well, he knows how to work a crowd, particularly a Russian crowd. I think that much is clear. And I guess we're all pretty much on the same page here, which is interesting, that we have relatively low expectations going into this meeting, which probably means in terms of uh, its market impact, it will be neutral uh, and will barely touch the sides, uh, as a lot of these macro events uh, over recent um, uh, years um, effectively have done the same thing, that they've been largely ignored by the market. But we, uh, we remain to be moved. Uh, let's wait and see what it looks like. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. 
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.